Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is April Goodwin, founder of The Goodwin Firm. Based in Largo, The Goodwin Firm is a law firm chiefly specializing in pet loss services. Parenthetically, I should say, in the spirit of giving credit where it's due, I learned of The Goodwin Firm and its animal-oriented practice from Natalie Weber's recent piece in the Tampa Bay Times. Meanwhile, Goodwin has explained that when she launched the firm in 2015, she decided to offer some representation in the realm of pet law while focusing the practice on employment law. Five years later, Goodwin has said that the office's ratio of pet cases to employment cases had about evened out. These days, the tally has shifted even further now. The Goodwin firm works on twice as many pet cases. We'll hear about that, what kind of issues those cases involve, and the range of animals they might represent when I speak with April Goodwin in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Programming note, later in today's show, I'll be giving away a pair of tickets to National Geographic Live, Wild Hope with Amy Vitale at the Strass Center on February 21st. And this evening, photographer and filmmaker Amy Vitale shares her stories of the reintroduction of white rhinos and giant pandas in the wild, as well as Kenya's first indigenous-owned and run elephant sanctuary. So that'll be later in today's program. Probably hooked to name that animal tune. Also later in today's program, I'll play an animal song, maybe two, time permitting. Both of them dog songs. One actually called the dog song. That's coming up later, as is a comedy piece by Sebastian Maniscalco as well as name that animal tune and, of course, the ticket giveaway. Right now, though, let's discuss the realm of pet loss services, some of the cases her office has handled, the animals that have been or could be clients, and more with April, who's joined us here in studio, I'm delighted to say. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is April Goodwin on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, April. Good morning, Duncan. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us to Talk Animals. And again, as I was saying off air just a moment ago, extra treat to have you uh, in the studio because we can talk face-to-face, which happens all too rarely on Talking Animals. So, of course, we're here chiefly to discuss the Goodwin Firm and its pet loss services, but I'd like to start by finding out a bit about your pre-attorney background. I imagine the April Goodwin story may well dovetail with the Goodwin Firm story, especially over the topic of animals. I'm just, it's just a hunch. But, for example, what did animals mean to you when you were a kid? Where, and, and where did you grow up for that matter? I grew up in Western Ohio, Lima, Ohio specifically is where I grew up, which is in between Dayton and Toledo on the western side of uh, Ohio, mm. and a small town. But I, we had dogs growing up mostly, uh, had one at a time, uh, have a few sisters, and that was probably enough for my parents to handle okay. on top of it. Let's not get too nuts with the dogs here. Right, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then when after our last dog uh, at the age of, oh, geez, I forget how old she was. She was old. Uh, died. Then I was in college, and my mom got became a cat person after that. So now oh. she's, yes, she has cats. She hasn't had a dog since. Uh, but then when I went out and moved out on my own, um, I also had cats because that was just the way my life was at the time and apartment living, it was much better. Sure, when we more finally, practical. Right, when we finally got a house, we had a bit of both and now we have one dog. So it was just something that we always had was, was some sort of, of pet in our life. Yeah, and so what would you say like within the family that sounded like it was one dog at a time, but at least there was always a dog. And so either in the family or just generally in the area, that this kind of small town area that you described that you grew up in, what would you say was kind of the culture about animals? Was there a certain bent that, uh, that you sort of were absorbing? Well, there was, it was, it's Western Ohio, very, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, but it's very rural. Mm-hmm. So the county fairs were a big deal. Yeah. So grew up doing that and seeing the pigs. I still want a pig. I'm not allowed to have one um, because, you know, my partner won't let me. Um, ah, okay. All right. <laughs> but, um, Seems very unreasonable, but that's another <laughs> conversation for another time, exactly. I guess. Yeah. Exactly. But um, so there is, a, you know, I, I enjoy you know, those types of animals as well. But that's you know really what we, we grew up around. But in the suburbs, it was dogs and cats and, and wildlife, yeah. uh, such as it is in, in Western Ohio. And did you ever feel either about the dog that you grew up with or later the cats and stuff that you got when you're out on your own, like particularly protective of those animals? Oh, absolutely. I, I still am. I, I don't have human children, so they are okay. they are my children. Yeah. They we were raised that way as well. My mom to this day calls her cats my my siblings. Okay. Yes. Uh, so you know, kind of like meet the parents. You know, that cat was like a brother to you, and so, yeah, that's our family. I got gotcha. you. So that is very 
you know, it is how we grew up and, and they were always part of the family. They are, you know, times have changed from the 70s and 80s, certainly in, in rural areas. It's still, from what I see on social media and everything, there is a difference there versus here for some people still with, with pets. Uh, but it is uh, definitely, yes, they were a part of our family and still are for me today. Yeah, and it does sound like there there was a protective kind of feeling Absolutely. that uh, that maybe was slightly at odds with maybe some of the other people in that area just because it sounds like if, it, if it's a rural thing, that's where you get operations, dog, all those things that sometimes are not the greatest circumstances for the animals just because they're breeding and all kinds of things are happening. Correct. Yeah. Well, my, my grandfather was a dairy farmer for before I was born, but in the past, and it just floored him that we had pets inside the house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, hey, what's going on here? We don't allow them inside. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that, but to see, that's what's interesting. That's what I was kind of asking about earlier about the culture, because it sounds like a bit of a culture clash in a way, just, just from one generation or maybe two, really. They're like, he was a dairy farmer, like the animals were always outside, and it's like, what inside? This is this is nuts. This is a heresy of some kind, right? But that you guys wouldn't have seen it any other way, uh, conversely. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely. This is Talking Animals on WMF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is April Goodwin, an attorney whose Largo Law from the Goodwin firm has increasingly specialized in providing pet law services. If you have a question for April about a pet law issue or potentially, a, I guess, a dispute—not that she could solve it, but she could perhaps comment on it—or um, or you'd just like to offer a comment yourself, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So as I understand it, you launched the Goodwin firm in 2015? Correct. Okay. So where did you practice before that and what kinds of law uh, were you practicing, wherever that was? Right. So I've been an attorney, it'll be 22 years this year. I went to law school in Ohio and then moved, like a lot of Ohioans, moved to Florida, Fort Myers in particular. So I was there for 14 years and uh, did, I was a prosecutor. I did workers' comp defense and employment law defense. I did product, defective product liability, class actions, mass torts. And when I was doing that, I read an article of 08, 09 that animal law is you know, recession proof, recession resistant, maybe is a better way to put it. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting to do something, not animal law, I'm sorry, animal industry, pet industry. Mm. And I thought, wouldn't that be something interesting to do and put, you know, that together with law? How would I do that? And so when I went on my own, I started thinking about how I would do that. And that's what I did. So when you were in law school, was there any kind of pet law or pet law related courses or elements that uh, that were offered there were not I, I i know i didn't take any and i i know i would have would have if they offered it so i don't recall any being offered at that time i do know that that is something i don't know about at my uh, alma mater but that is something that uh, i have colleagues across the country who have taught animal law courses and i believe you know probably even here locally yeah no it does seem like it's really kind of a a bit of a trend at a lot of law schools and there all kinds of people are endowing chairs and all kinds of things to really, I think, cultivate that sense of um, more attorneys out there with advocacy or other kind of animal issues at uh, front and center of their practice or at least uh, of their passion. So, um, yeah, interesting. So, okay, so you read about this and you said, well, hey, pet law services, maybe that's that's something for me. And um, so was that kind of the chief impetus of when you launched your own firm, like thinking, hey, we might do other forms of practice as well or fields, but we definitely want to get into this pet law service thing? To be honest, the impetus was I didn't want to work for anyone anymore. Okay. <laughs> anyone That's else. Right. I want to be my own boss. <laughs> exactly. Darn it. Yeah. Exactly. I was uh, frankly a little burned out and was not really sure what I wanted to do and had the opportunity to actually be a contract attorney for a business and do employment and business law for him while exploring also some other things and what I wanted to do. And I did a variety of things. I dabbled in some civil rights. I dabbled in some other types of cases and uh, settled on the employment and the the animal law for being my primary focus. Yeah. And it seemed like, what, fairly early on that it sort of started to to click? I I guess that's relative. It was probably, I would say, 2018 is when, for some reason, and I wish I knew to this day why, we our phone started ringing more with with animal law cases. And then in the 
during lockdown or shutdown, whatever we're calling it, it, they took off a little bit more. And then every year, as you said, stated earlier, it's just grown and grown and grown. So you launched a firm in 2015 and and pet law services were going to be part of it. But three years later is when it really seemed to to kick in, as you're describing it. Um, What kind of marketing or how how are you getting the word out or at least gradually it built up to what sounds like a big surge of interest in 2018? Really, I we've pretty much always been pretty organic with our, with our marketing. We are referral based. Most of our cases uh, traditionally have come from referrals. I think they still do. It's hard to say. We do ask people obviously where they come from when they call. And they don't always remember, but that is really where it came from. And I was a member of several organize, organizations and even you know networking groups online of other attorneys, and really just kind of. Letting everybody know, hey, this is what I do. And so they see dog, they see cat, and they think Goodwin Firm, they think April, and we, we get that referral. So back then, at least in that circle of, of sort of lawyers networking and stuff, were you kind of a, an anomaly by even saying like, hey, uh, I'm doing other stuff too, but I'm really going to start doing pet law services were you, did you kind of stand out in uh, that sort of a distinctive element of, of, of the Goodwin firm? I think it is. There are a handful of other attorneys who do this uh, across the state, some of whom I'm very close. We've worked close together, have helped me out, have helped them out. They send us cases, we send them cases. But there's, it's not like driving down you know, 275 or 19 where there's billboards for personal injury attorneys. Yeah. Yeah, it, it isn't that. So it is that the competition really isn't there and we're able to be really collaborative, which is really cool. Uh, and that even sometimes when we go against each other, it's, it's a very small sphere. So it, we, we try to work together as much as possible. So that is really, but for the most part, yes. And, and admittedly at that time, especially going out on my own for the first time, I was maybe a little bit of a social media addict. So I was on mm. it a lot. Okay. And and just generally just talking every chance I could get commented on things and whether it was about pet law or something else. So getting my name out there to begin with. And then on top of that, when everything pet law or employment for that matter came up, I, I made sure to comment on it. Yeah. So that was kind of the idea where people say, hey, we have an issue now. Maybe maybe we should call April Goodwin because uh, we keep seeing her references to animal pets services different kinds of law, and I know she's a lawyer and we need a lawyer, so boom, right? That's kind of how. Absolutely, and it's it's about giving back too. So, you know, to my fellow attorneys and, help, like I said, helping them when I could and making sure that I did return the favor and did the same for them when I saw something that yeah. you know, they, they could handle that I, that I couldn't or didn't want to and sending, making sure, taking care of my friends and yeah. my colleagues. It's funny you would say the thing about the billboards because I was singing driving over here this morning that I, I do see a lot of billboards mm-hmm. and of course I think we all see or hear if we watch much TV a lot of ads for a lot of law firms doing not necessarily a lot of different kinds of things there seems to be kind of a few areas of specialty so it's refreshing I think that so far at least maybe I'm just watching or listening in the wrong area but I don't see really anything uh, in that same sort of constant parade of ads that are pet law related or or at all really right no i don't think there's any big advertising i've run a few ads and and print the local the things you get in the mail and stuff like that but even that i don't even know that i really got anything from that other than getting our name out there probably helped but it is really word of mouth and and our biggest hurdle is and I this one reason why I really appreciate you know being here today is just letting people know pet law exists. Yeah. That they have options and that there are attorneys who focus on this. Uh we, we run in, into a lot of attorneys and take over from a lot of attorneys who it's not their focus sometimes. And and not to say that they don't sometimes do an, an excellent job, but really for us it's it's about, you know, knowing what you're doing. And some of these things are very procedurally particular. Uh, and when we do it day in, day out. Yeah. So w- once that kind of surge happened in 2018, I, I gather from especially what I just said in the kind of opening about charting the uh, evolution of the ratio of pet law cases, that it seems like it's grown and grown and grown in your practice. So did it just kind of keep going on that sort of pretty steady, if not dramatic trend as of 2018, where people just kept coming and coming and coming and you just kind of continue to get, I guess referrals or at least inquiries? Yes, absolutely. That's that's the way it happened. And we're seeing 
again and, and increase this year as well. That's 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 great. You must you must feel like okay, I did the right thing. This was kind of a bit of a scary plunge to take, but it's worked out. Oh, absolutely. And again, you know, with all the fear of recession and all of that, and then again, this, the impetus for doing pet law being reading about that article about pet industry being recession proof really is, you know, it was right, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what, whether we're in a recession or not, you know, those fears aren't, don't seem to be harming us. And what, because uh, I think you drew a passing distinction just a few moments ago, so I just might be helped to, to address this. So, well, what would you say between pet law, which is obviously what you and your firm do, um, what is the, the main distinction between that and, and sort of, the, I guess, the more broad topic of animal law? That's, that's a really good question. So animal law is all kinds of things. So, yes, it would encompass pet law, but it would be uh, things like things that PETA does, things uh, for animal rights, things for you know zoos, for for all kinds of, of things of that nature. And usually pet law or animal law, I'm sorry, is often described as animal rights law mm. and animal rights advocacy. And that is a big part of it. But pet law would be a subset of that uh, dealing with what we call companion animals. So that would be your dogs, your cat, your pets, what we call pets. There's also equestrian law, which has its whole own thing. Um, it's a very specialized type area of law uh, dealing with, Equestrians, because there are special laws dealing with that. Also, farming, things of that nature would have special laws in dealing with that. And not that we don't handle those types of things, exotics, things of that nature. Yeah. But we our focus is on the companion animals. Right. So if it's anything that loosely kind of described as a pet, that would fall within your purview. But other things like that you mentioned and I assume like agricultural and other issues or, or would be outside of what you typically would handle at the firm. Typically, yes, yeah. yes. We have handled equestrian cases. We have handled some other types of cases, wildlife, you know, licensure, exotics, you know, things like that, regulatory uh, types of things. But by and large, it's it's pets, it's it's everyday people and businesses for that matter and representing pet industry businesses as well. Ah, okay. Well, let's get into some of, some of those kind of specifics, starting with, I guess, what's the most common kind of case that you and your firm handle? The most common kind of case is what we would call pet custody cases. Now, pets, legally, animals are that aren't wildlife are property in Florida and in every state. Yeah. They're, they're considered property. Now, some other states are, are changing or there might be some special you know, categories, but by and large, they are property same as you know, your sofa, your car, your, your things like that. There are special, obviously, things, laws that apply, animal cruelty, uh, you know, animal control, licensure, all of those things. But by and large, they are treated as property. And so pet custody is a, is a misnomer. It's not really custody. It's who owns the pet. And who has the right to possess the pet is usually the owner. And so that is what almost always the owner. And so that's, that's what those cases are about. And those range from... Unmarried couples, now married couples can debate that too, but when you go through a divorce, the divorce court would handle that, and we do not do family law. Uh, but the, so unmarried couples, uh, adult children and their parents, breeders and rescues who have contracts with, with people who have their, their pets, whether it's fosters or guardians or, or people who adopted them, and maybe they've violated that contract in some way, and they uh, would you know seek to be getting the pet back. Uh, but those types of things are, are, by and large, the most common. So let's follow up on a few of those things. So let's say if I follow you from the thing you just mentioned, one of the examples you gave. So if if I agree to foster a dog through some sort of rescue organization, and then the time comes where the organization finds like, hey, we, we it looks like we have someone that's ready to adopt them, and I say you know what, I'm I've grown so attached to this dog, I'm not going to give the dog back. Is that an example of what you mean about the kind of dispute that could happen in, in that case? Or? Well, right, absolutely, that would happen. We see that happen actually a lot with breeders when breeders will have a, a responsible breeders, you know, that aren't puppy mills. What they do is they have a contract with, with regular people, regular families, to have their, their breeding dogs live with a family, so they can have a family life, but there's caveats to that, and the breeder still owns the dog. They should have a contract. Uh, if they don't, they, 
it runs in all kinds of problems, and that's true for a lot of areas of law. Yeah. But if they the contract will say, okay, you let us breed this dog for however many times, we, we are still the owner. And then after that, you have this family dog after so many long, a year, two years, and now you have a dog that's yours that's full, you know, bred and, you know, all of those things, full breed. So sometimes people understandably get, you know, my dog is neutered, my dog's, my pets have always been spayed and neutered, so I get it. But they did agree to this, and they, you know, say, oh, no, wait, I've changed my mind about this whole breeding thing, and then they don't want to give the dog back. But with rescues, what happens a lot of times is somebody gives up the pet, and they give it up to somebody, and they shouldn't, and all rescues have a, in their contract and in their agreements, too, if they... If you can't have the pet anymore, you need to bring it back to us. So that happens. But it could happen with fosters as well. We haven't fortunately had that situation, but whatever the the rescue's contract says is what would have to happen in that situation. And I noticed you uh, in, in the classic uh, lawyer, smart person thing said, you know, these all should be in writing. How mm-hmm. often do you find, though, that foster situations, other things, some of those that you just described, how often do they actually have written agreements? They, the responsible ones do. The responsible breeders do. They, they do the right thing and they have an agreement. But what happens a lot of times is life is messy mm-hmm. and people, you know people, and so it's somebody you trust, whether you're the person who's taking custody of this you know, pet or whether you're the breeder or, or rescue who is giving it to the other person and you think, oh, well, we get along. We don't have to do that. We have to bother with that. Yeah. And then they don't get along anymore. And then that's, you know, things happen and things change. So really the response, that's why, you know, I focus on that is because most of them do, but a lot of times when it's between friends and family, they get lax and that's when we see the problems. Hopefully we just see the problems and it does work out for most people. But for us, we see the problem. So we really strongly encourage any time you're transferring possession or ownership of, of a pet, whether you're the one doing the transferring or especially if you're the one taking ownership, get that in writing. Even if it's, I don't care what it is, just write, you know, I hereby, you know, I Duncan hereby, you know, give ownership of, you know, Chewbacca, that's my dog, you mm-hmm. know, to April. Yeah. Sign date. Everybody signs and dates. You say so that, even yeah. that as the elements of the agreement, so that if things get messy, there's that to sort of decide how it should be resolved. Whereas when there isn't one of those things in place, especially with as a friend and family thing, which is why they probably didn't get the agreement, as right. you've noted. How does that get resolved? Is it just supreme ugliness, and then eventually there's a resolution, or? Yes, that's a very good way to describe it. Supreme ugliness, court here, battle, when we, what we see, that can get expensive. Yeah. Because you know, both sides probably have attorneys at that point saying, no, I'm not giving it back. Well, yes, you are. You agree to, but, well, you have nothing in writing and on and on, right. right? Yeah, and we can't work on contingency. We can't take a third of your dog, right? Right, so, yeah. So, you know, that's and the tricky. same for the yeah. all the attorneys who do this. Right. And so it's, so it's, you're saying there has to be an hourly correct. fee just because otherwise it wouldn't make sense for you guys. Right, right. right. Yeah, we, yeah. Do, we do have bills as much as we'd love to help everybody yeah but the but so the and that's really what happens is it gets ugly and and you have to start looking at text messages and who paid for the vet and who the microchip is but in the end what it comes down to quite often is who whose name is on the ownership paperwork from the last transfer of ownership which will be the adoption paperwork the the sales paperwork the bill of sale or whatever from when you know the pet was originally obtained by this group of people, mm. uh, whoever that is. And that can get really hairy, especially when you're talking about a couple who's broken up because maybe one had the day off and that's why they went and picked up the dog and signed the paperwork, but the yeah. other one works close to the vet. So they took it to the vet and yeah, it just wow. gets very. So really what we're trying to push now is, is prevention and working with people. And we will be posting sometime soon on our website, some agreements for people just to be able to, you know, download and, and explain to people why they are, Just kind of like basic sort of boilerplate agreements just so people can avoid these exact ugly uh, uh, spats uh, and worse, I should say, more than spat probably. But uh, You might not avoid it, but hopefully your chances of winning are better when that happens. Yeah, there you go. You're you're better armed in that (laughs) case. Yes, exactly. So we should note that the uh, website for the Goodwin Firm is goodwin-firm.com. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So you can check out... uh, other stuff there, including some of the pet services and stuff they uh, offer. We'll get into some of that too. But I want to back up a little bit because something you said, in fact, I was going to ask a specific question, then you brought it up, not surprisingly, before I did. But 
I think it's so important, and I think often people are so surprised that animals are considered property. I mean, even cats and dogs, just because some people that might um, anticipate that being the case with certain animals do not anticipate it with cats and dogs, and that that really dictates so much of of how uh, their fate in a given hassle, dispute, problem, whatever, because it is a piece of property which seems kind of horrible to say, but it's it's that's that's the truth, that's the facts. So that I think a lot of people aren't prepared for that, and they think, really, property, my my beloved Fluffy, or you know, right. or Chewy, or you right. know, whoever. Um, so I think that's that's super eye opening in the worst way sometimes for people. Oh, absolutely. And it's tough. That that means there's no pain and suffering. So, for example, veterinary malpractice cases, we don't really handle those on the on the plaintiff, the pet owner side all that often. If at all, we, you know, we might try to help some people you know, settle a case or something like that. But to litigate it, first of all, any malpractice case is very tough. Uh, it's the same with humans or, or pets. But on top of that, it's the value is just it's not, you know, there and and we certainly don't want to take advantage of anyone when they're emotional and say oh yeah sure we'll take your case and we'll charge you by the hour we'll charge all this money and you're not going to be able to get it or get your hopes up or anything like that we want to be very smart about that and the truth of the matter is is you're not going to get that much money for them because their pain and suffering your pain and suffering for you know unfor- what you know very unfortunate thing that happened even if it's absolutely 100% the fault of of another is just monetarily not going to be worth that much. And it may not be worth the money to you now, but eventually it will be because that's just life. That's the way yeah, it is. Yeah, So I want to go back a little bit to a more general thing because we talked about how in 2018 things really kicked in and now really the subsequent years that it's just the, that side of the business has really grown at your firm. Do you, do you see that um, that shift is reflected uh, nationally or regionally or at least locally? I mean, is there, is there a sort of a commensurate shift as far as you know in pet law cases across the board or across the country or at least just in the area? What, what do you see? Is, there, is this kind of a, an exception to the rule or is this actually commonplace now? I think it's becoming more and more commonplace. I do think places like St. Pete was voted the most dog-friendly city, you know, in the, in the country. Yeah. I think it was last year or the year before. So things like that. I know New York City's got a pretty, you know, uh, healthy uh, pet law community. So I think that, you know, places where you've got people who, you know, frankly, bigger cities where they are more likely to see their pets as, as family than in a rural area. But in rural areas, again, you have equestrian, you have livestock, you have all other kinds of things. Yeah. And I have colleagues who are in rural areas and, and make a good living doing doing pet law and animal law. Is it then kind of at least partly, if not largely, just the product of m- more people with more pets and therefore, unfortunately, more issues, disputes, problems because of that growing number of just animals that are that people have at home? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that's that's a large part of it. And, and again, the, the cultural change just generationally, like we were talking before, yeah. of seeing your, your pets like children, despite the fact that the courts won't treat them that way, that is certainly that. And we all know somebody, if not ourselves, who have spent tens of thousands of dollars on vet bills to save a, a pet and sometimes, unfortunately, not successfully. And it's really the same thing with us as a, as a lawyer. Fortunately, by and large, when we have a custody dispute, both people really care about the pet, and we don't have a true abuse or neglect situation going on. Although they obviously dispute who who the pet loves more and who. Right. Yeah. That <laughs> that argument can go on endlessly. Yeah. I assume. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But but beyond that, it, it's rare that we would have a like an animal control, like actual you know, animal control cruelty situation. Uh, with 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 pet custody, which is nice, you don't see that in family law with kids, unfortunately. But. Yeah. All right. Again, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is April Goodwin, an attorney whose law firm, the Goodwin Firm, specializes in providing pet law services. As we're hearing, we invite you to join the conversation. We have a question for April about any sort of pet law issue that you may be facing or anticipate or once had or anything else. You can call eight one three two three nine nine six six three. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So tell me about some other cases, and especially, uh, at least based on your website, it's clear that you guys work more broadly than just cats and dogs, even though that's probably the, the core, I would think, the core work. But tell me some other cases 
and, or to the extent you can describe them, but especially some that involve, you know, not cats or dogs, not uh, classic companion animals. Oh, sure, yes. So we've, again, we've done some wildlife, you know, uh, licensing and, and help with people there. We Again, we represent pet industries, so uh, rescues and helping them with their paperwork or if, you know, they get sued or need to sue somebody as well. Uh, a lot of times defamation comes into it because people go online and say things they shouldn't, so so we get a broad variety there. But as far as other types of animals, we had my, my most uh, unusual one was a duck that was a pet duck. Oh, wow. What yes, happened there? Yes, and he was a, that one, and that client has given me uh, permission to, to speak you know, somewhat about that, so I can. Okay. But it, what that was was, it, it's, and that's a good example of how something can come in as an animal law case and and evolve or devolve, I guess, depending on how you look at it, into something completely different. But that was a situation, uh, and what I can talk about with that is that was a situation where a family, uh, a husband and wife, and they had a young child, and they had bought ducks for their apartment pond. They live in an apartment and had a pond, and they had bought ducks to go swim out in the in the pond with the permission of the property manager, with the knowledge of the property manager. This went on for quite a while, I want to say a couple of years. They also had a pet duck that stayed with them, stayed in the house and, or in the you know, apartment, yeah. and they would let it out every morning to go swim and do its duck thing, and he would wait at the door to come back in. Wow. Yeah, and unfortunately, they ended up it ended up being, long story short, a dispute with the apartment, you know, new, new apartment manager, and it ended up being a landlord-tenant issue and ended up being a Fair Credit Reporting Act issue. Wow. And really you mean because there was an argument over who the duck belonged to? Or? Well, what happened was, unfortunately, so for some reason, all of a sudden, this property manager who knew these were my client's ducks and had no problem with it before, at least none that we knew of, you know, with my client's full permission or with the property manager's full permission, uh, my client had these ducks and some trapper, and I learned, this is something I learned, some trapper came along and, and, you know, asked the property manager, hey, you've got these ducks out in the pond, want me to get rid of them for you. Apparently they will offer to do that. And my understanding was that they will offer to do that. And those ducks end up in at auction and market. Oh, geez. Yeah. So think about that the next time you have duck, whether I know you're a vegetarian, but aside from that, if you enjoy duck, it might be, you know, a duck that was raised in Tampa apartment water. Uh. <laughs> but uh. anyway, and so of course, a struggle ensued. Fortunately, the pet duck made it. Some of the others didn't, but uh, that's where it all began. That's where the trouble began. Okay. Well, we'll come back to maybe some others, <laughs> but we do have a call. Let's uh, get somebody else involved in the conversation. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with April Goodwin. Go ahead, please. Hi. Hi, go ahead, please. Hi, Steve from Tampa. Quick question. I have friends who had a much-loved pet and got sick, 11 or 12 years old, and um, the operation, they had several operations, but the last operation where the animal passed was unsuccessful, and of course they were shattered. And then, as is often the case, they went on the Internet and lo- you know, located some information that two or three things uh, were possible as a result of this operation. And one was a complication, and they were just very, very upset that the vet didn't discuss this with them, or at least that was their perspective on it. They're good friends of mine, so I'm sure it's all very true, but they were very hurt. And, you know, they called and asked, you know, what can we do? And I said, you know, this is not an area of law that I practice in at all, but and I gave them a referral, and you know, which I found on the Internet. And basically they were told, unfortunately, you know, there's – little or no value uh, with respect to an animal. And so my question is this. If you've had any medical malpractice actions where evaluation of a pet as a result of death or complications due to negligence, quote, unquote, um, what do the courts award? Is it it nominal, like $150 or a dollar? I'm just wondering. Okay, thanks for your question. That's a very good question. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's absolutely a good question. That's a, definitely a lawyer question. And I appreciate that because they are difficult, and that's one reason why we don't take them. So it's the value of the pet. Now there is case law out there that says it is reasonable for uh, the defendant. So in this case, it would have been you know a vet or, or who you know the clinic, whatever it was, to assume that somebody is going to pay more for their vet bills than they will. The value of the pet. So in a lot of other types of negligence cases, you have, like, let's say your car or something like that, you can't 
I pay, you know, my car's worth $5,000 and I paid 10000 to fix it. And the court's going to go, well, that's waste. That's economic waste. That's not reasonable. But with pets, that is one of the areas that it is a little different than regular property is they will award uh, more money for things like vet bills than what the pet would have been worth. You can also prove that the pet had an intrinsic value. So I have a colleague, Marcy Hart in Central Florida, who uh, I don't know that she's taking vet malpractice cases now, but she has historically she's you know been able to get some success with getting uh, a little bit more money. Uh, again, you're not talking a, a human medical malpractice case. It is not somebody who earned wages. It's not somebody you know who did all of those things. But if you could prove that the pet had some sort of, you know, we, we took the, you know, the pet to the most, you know, the best dog trainers in the world, or, or maybe we did make some money, you know, it's, you know, uh, a show dog or something like that, then those would be the types of things you'd have to prove. But the intrinsic value is worth something, but never what, you know, you're talking, you know, probably less than, you know, 30 $40,000 would be the best you could hope. And then that might be, again, a very, that's going to be a very tough case. And they're tough cases to prove even before you get to that point. Okay, again, thank you for your call. We got uh, one of our emailers says, my partner's U.S. Army veteran uh, is, I guess, U.S. Army veteran, has a PTSD dependency on, with, and for his great Pyrenees. He also has a service set of injuries that makes walking difficult, especially stairs, even incline ramps. Uh, for wheelchairs. Please ask April to repeat her business name and website. Grateful for this very necessary intro, maybe info, on such a great, important topic. Thanks as usual, Duncan. So, so again, this is April Goodwin. Her, her firm is the Goodwin Firm, and the website is goodwin-firm.com, correct? Correct, correct. And we're also on, on Facebook and Instagram. And they tell me LinkedIn, but... <laughs> yeah, so you can search uh, social media, but that's the website, and that's the name of the firm, and thanks so much for your uh, inquiry. So before we get too much closer to the end of our time, one thing I'm, I'm really interested in, I think double-checking on your website as I look here, but yeah, I guess I'm really curious, what are the prospects of challenging breed discrimination ordinances or policies? I mean, can they be challenged successfully, or does it depend on kind of where they're implemented and how, how much that challenge could be effective? Well, correct. It, 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 it depends, right? And classic lawyer answer. From a, a micro standpoint, I guess, from you know, what we would deal with on a case-by-case basis would be if your pet is a, a service animal or a legitimate emotional support animal, and those are two different things and different laws even apply to them, although they're very, very similar. Uh, but if they're those things, then breed-specific litig- uh, legislation policies, things like that, don't uh, necessarily apply. Again, it, it, it they may in certain situations. There's some case law that you can't force a landlord to get uh, pay a lot for insurance and things like that, so they can make you get insurance. Uh, but but that is a you know personally as the as the dog owner. But certainly, again, talking back to more like animal law is you know part of that is policies and and lobbying and certainly breed specific you know legislation is something that you know we uh, are against. Uh, they, I am a member of the uh, animal law section of the Florida Bar, and um, we, that's that's a big you know topic for us. So that is something that we are against. But as it stands right now, that's a municipalities, the state, you know, anybody could pass that that kind of law because again, the property. It's the same as saying we can't own a, a, a tank or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's always so complicated, and uh, there's just so many difficult stories uh, about people that you know get a job you know, get transferred or whatever, they move somewhere and find out maybe they should have found out before, but often that's just not in the, the top priorities as they're moving and whatever, that there is a, a breed discrimination or they can't have a pit bull type dog or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden they're, they're in a dire situation because it's probably, it's often too late to move again. And yet they don't want to get rid of their dog, but they might be forced to. And it's like, oh my God, this is just heartbreaking. It is really heartbreaking, and the stats are that Labrador Retrievers are the breed responsible for most pet bites in America. Now, that's because there's more Labrador Retrievers than any other kind of dog, but, you know, nobody, uh, Chihuahuas might bite people more than anybody, but nobody reports it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. There, there's there's definitely some, uh, some bad uh, reporting slash media slash press that goes on, and, and that's really kind of skewed this picture tremendously, Absolutely. but that's... 
that's another show for another time as well. But uh, so, we're, in fact, just about unfortunately at the uh, end of this one. But let me just ask one of our emailers um, asked us, and you know, maybe just a brief answer to this one, if possible. What's the best outcome she's had for a pet owner? The best outcomes, and, and this has happened fortunately for us, you know, repeatedly, are when we are. are our client doesn't have custody of a pet. Somebody stole it from them, a, a, a partner, a family member, whatever, took the pet, and it wasn't their pet, and we're able to go to court and, and relatively quickly, and relative is the key word here with the court system, but be able to get them their pet back. So we've had you know, people who are emotionally you know, very dependent on their pets you know, and may even actually qualify as a service animal if we really ticked everything off or emotional support animal. But that's not the situation, and we're just able to get them their pets, and it's... You know, really, it's it's just great because they have mental health issues a lot of times or just, they're just normal people who want their pets back and we're able to get them back for them. So one last quick question. Is part of your practice still involve either employment law or something not pet law services or are you strictly pet law services now? No, we still, we do employment law, so we represent, and we do trademarks as well, so we okay. represent businesses in, in employment. We don't do employee side, we do employer side businesses, and, and that's why we also like to do pet industries, because we can kind of merge the two together. Okay, so do you, do you envision a time where you might only do pet law services, or do you kind of want to have some other areas just because, of, for that reason, again, the kind of a relationship that might exist between two different areas? Well, I think we will keep it open, and I like doing different stuff. So, yeah, yeah, mix yeah. it up it a little. It helps my ADHD to be very... <laughs> there we go. Yes. All right, we've been speaking with April Goodwin. Again, her firm is called The Goodwin Firm. It's in Largo. You can track her down one way or the other and uh, ask some other questions, or if you need help with one of your own uh, disputes or issues with your pets or whatever... Uh, obviously, this is a specialty of theirs, and they've done quite well. So thanks, uh, April, for joining us on Talking Animals. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. In a moment, we'll hear at least one animal song. Ideally, two. We'll see how this plays out, and hope we get to do both songs. I'll say the artists behind those songs are Josh Rouse and Nellie McKay. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner. This is the great Sebastian Maniscalco with a piece called Possum Problem in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. God, is it nice to be here. I'm dealing with a uh, possum problem at the house. <laughs> Just moved into a new house. Me and my wife like to go in the yard at night have a little wine and these possums are comfortable <laughs> like if they could talk they'd be like what the hell are you doing here <laughs> now growing up I grew up in an immigrant family and how we handled possums raccoons my father would be like we're gonna murder the bastard <laughs> gonna pour antifreeze on baloney. What? <laughs> Woke up in the morning, birds, squirrels, raccoons just murdered all over her property. <laughs> Neighbors coming by, have you seen our cat? Nah, we haven't seen it. Check the yard. But my wife, she didn't grow up this way. We gotta call the possum police. <laughs> it's a humane service. They come over, $150 traps. Guy tells me uh, it's $35 extra for the, uh, for the bait. I said, uh, what are you using? He's like, uh, peanut butter. <laughs> $35 for peanut butter? I got $1.23 jiffy inside. What kind of... Then he tells me it's $75 per possum that he removes. I said, where are you taking the possum? He's like, I drive him 30 miles away. I let him go in Malibu. Now, I don't believe a word this guy's telling me. I think he goes down the block, lets it out. He's making $75 on the same possum. 
That was Sebastian Maniscalco in today's Comedy Corner of the piece called Possum Problem Taken from an Appearance on Conan. Now it's time to hear an animal song or two. Nellie Mackay, the uh, most frequent guest. On Talking Animals over our nearly 20-year history, was in town last weekend performing at the side door in St. Pete in a performance that underscored what a singular artist she is. Inevitably, there were requests for this tune, and nearly as inevitable, she played it. It's Nellie Mackay with the dog song on Talking Animals on WMNF. an angry one too then there was you appeared when I was entangled with youth and fear and nerves jangled jangled vermouth and beer were getting me mangled up but then I looked in your eyes and I was no more a failure you looked so wacky and wise and I said Lord I'm happy your husband just a walk in my My love was tragic and sad I was the archetypal loser I was a pageant con bad Then there was you on time And wagging your tail in the cutest mime And you was in jail I said woof be mine And you gave a wail And then I was no longer alone And I was no more a boozer That's Nellie McKay with the dog song here on Talking Animals on WNF. Coming up on WNF, full-time music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m., a glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment, as a prize for Name That Animal Tune, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'll be offering that pair of tickets to National Geographic Live, Wild Hope, with uh, Amy Vitale at the Strauss Center on February 21st. Again, that's going to be, a, uh, I think, a pretty fascinating talk where she uh, shows pictures and films that she's taken and talks about white rhinos and giant pandas and uh, Kenya's first indigenous-owned run elephant sanctuary. So if you'd like to uh, have a shot at the tickets to that, you can play Name That Animal Tune. The first person who calls 813-239-9663 uh, correctly identifies this animal song will win the tickets to National Geographic. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF.
All right. If you can name that animal, too. We might even... We've got a couple of people. Looks like they might be guessing. Maybe we'll gild the lily a little bit and put them on the air and see if we can take their guesses live. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. You're on the air live on WMNF. Can you name that animal tune? Hey, Alan. I'm sorry? My name is Alan. Okay, can you name that animal tune, though, is the question. Oh, what's the question? Okay, I thought you were calling to name that animal tune. Okay, thanks. So I got to go to the next caller. Sorry, thanks. Hi, can you name that animal tune? You're live on the air on WMNF. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, what am I guessing? The topic of the song or the animal of the song? The title of the song. Name that animal tune. Uh, I don't know it, but I'm going to go with the dark horse. There you go. That's right. What is your first name, sir? My first name is Jason. Jason, great. I'm going to come back and get your information, get you set up for those tickets if you'd like to go. I'll come back as soon as we're off the air. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Hope you'll join me next Wednesday for another edition. You can also go to TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. You can also check out links to social media, etc. And you can subscribe to our newsletter. Find out about our guests a couple of days before we're in other news. That's all at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals, be kind to others, be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WMF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi. Scott Elliott's up next after NPR News. Thanks.